This Bites, discussing Milwaukee's culinary and restaurant culture. With Ann Christensen of Milwaukee Magazine and Tariq Moody of 88.9. This Bites is brought to you by Society Insurance. Welcome to This Bites, Milwaukee's culinary podcast with the goddess of food writing and critique, Ann Christensen of Milwaukee Magazine, and me, Tariq Moody of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee. We have a special treat for you on this week's This Bites. We have our first ever interview. This week, we interviewed lacrosse chef Adrian Lipscomb, uh, chef owner of Uptown Cafe and Bakery, about her new project, really interesting project called 40 Acres and a Mule. And the, the campaign's goal includes purchasing land to guarantee farm-to-table resources for the food industry, serve to provide an outlet for black foodways and then establish a safe haven to secure the legacy of black foodways. So stick around for that special interview coming up on this bites. But right now we're going to talk about a really cool event happening at the Ivy house from August 6th to the 12th. And it's called taste of the state fair. Do you miss the state fair? Is it, has it happened yet? Is it supposed to happen? What was the date? It's always like now. Okay, right about now, give or take a day or two. But, you know, it's always like those first two weeks of August. Yeah. And I know we talked about they were doing um, curbside stuff, curbside foods. And I think that's still going on over to State Fair. So you can get some, uh, you know, State Fair favorites. But yeah, if uh, you're not like I saw some of those lines, those car lines for that. But if you don't want to wait in line over to State Fair or you don't you're not you don't want to drive too far if you're in the city. The Ivy House has something special, August 6th to the 12th, called Taste of the State Fair. Uh, they're hosting this event in their little, I mean, been Ivy House has a really cool, the parking lot kind of outdoor area. Yeah. So they have several vendors offering kind of their take on State Fair uh, treats, including Ivy House is doing classic style cream puffs plus old fashioned style cream puffs. I mean, flavor it like the old fashioned cocktail, which sounds very interesting. Um, there's also vendors milk cans going to be there, uh, only on Saturday, apparently with hamburgers and fried chicken, Sammy's grilled cheese and custard Pete's pop will be there with their Georgia peach key lime pie, blueberry, basil, lemonade, sweet corn pop. That sounds sweet corn pops. <laughs> get it? The cereal corn pop. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I get it. and, uh, blackberry and more. Also, tall guy in the grill is going to have loaded baked potatoes, whiskey, pickleback. I don't know what that is. Giant pickles on a stick, roasted corn. Then there's tots on the street with their hand stuffed tater tots. They sound new. Do you think they're new? Yeah, I think they sound new. Okay. Yeah. So they're going to have uh, cheese curd style tater tots. Interesting. Chicken bacon ranch, bacon wrap, jalapeno, and more. Smoke Shack going to be there with some uh, traditional cheese curds with some uh, smoked chicken wings. And then this place called Happy Dough Lucky will be there with fresh squeeze lemonade and warm mini donuts. And that's from August 6th through the 12th. Taste the State Fair at the Ivy House, which is located in Walker's Point. So if you, you know you're probably fiending for some uh, cream puffs. And- you know, I'm missing those cream puffs. I have to say, I am. You know, it's always when you can't get them that you really want them. Yeah. I wish they had other flavors. I'm so excited to see what they do with like the old fashioned style. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm really curious about that one. Like, is the the puff going to be flavored as well? Yeah. yeah or, is it just, or is it just the cream going to be flavored? So anyway, 
That is the Taste of the State Fair. Coming up, we will uh, get to our special first ever interview on this bites with Adrian Lipscomb of the 40 Acres and Mule Project coming up on this bites. Radio Milwaukee is on a mission. And if you're here to discover new perspectives on music in Milwaukee, then you're on a mission too. Join today to support the programming you love. Visit RadioMilwaukee.org and click the orange heart. We have a special guest on this bites. Straight out of La Crosse, Wisconsin, we have Chef Adrian Lipscomb, chef owner of Uptown Cafe and Bakery, also in La Crosse, Wisconsin. We're going to talk to her about her, not about a restaurant, but she launched a really interesting project called 40 Acres and a Mule. We'll get into that later, but we want to get a little background on you, Adrian. So tell me uh, a little bit about you. You're, you're not originally from Wisconsin. You're not originally uh, studied culinary to become a chef. Tell me a little bit about your background, where you came from and all that. I am originally from Texas, San Antonio. I was born, uh, not necessarily raised in San Antonio, uh, but a, a true Southerner. Um, I uh, went to architecture school. I have my bachelor's in MARC in architecture. And then I went for my PhD uh, and I'm a PhD candidate in community regional planning out of UT Texas, Austin. That's kind of funny because uh, like we, we know this, but maybe the audience doesn't know this, that I'm also my career different. Like I was trained in architecture, got to Howard University, bachelor of architecture, but now I'm doing, you know, radio and a food podcast. So, you know, we kind of, and I am from the South. So we're kind of like siblings in a way. Yeah. I mean, but food plays a, an important role, um, believe it or not, in architecture and city planning. Um, I just think it's natural. And if you know, you know everything about, you know, how we went to school, we barely ate or if we, <laughs> we barely ate and did all night. We did. You know? good. <laughs> food played a significant role um, in in designing uh, kitchens or, you know, and, and, and how a family moves throughout their house and to the kitchen. So, you know, I think... Um, you know, food is really significant when it comes to planning and architecture. And um, again, you're you're Texas. Uh, how does it, how does a Texan get up not only to Wisconsin, not Madison, not Milwaukee, but Lacrosse? How did you find your way to Lacrosse? Um, that's really funny. Um, yeah. So I was going to school in Austin, and one thing that um, we knew right away is that Austin was growing too fast and too rapidly for the amount of work and things that we were doing. Um, you would significantly spend a lot of time in your car. You know, on average, you would be in a car for an extra two hours alone. Um, so we wanted to slow down a little bit. And um, I started doing research, but I was also going in and out of town uh, for conferences and working with mayors and um, directors of planning of different cities. And I thought, well, this would be a great opportunity to kind of interview cities and interview their mayors and their director of planners um, planning to talk about um, where their city's going. And um, La Crosse just won uh, between it really fit the needs that we were looking for and then the community, what we were wanting. Okay. And then how'd you end up starting Uptown Cafe and Bakery? I mean, how did you become, how'd you decide, well, you know, I'm done with architecture. Let's do this culinary thing. What was the, was there a defining moment that says, this is what I'm going to do. 
How'd you make that transition? Um, there was like no way I was <laughs> knew I was going to open a brick and mortar. Um, you know, at the time um, when I was in Austin, I did own a bakery, but it was more of a wholesale bakery. Um, and then our our face to face interaction was at farmers markets. So we never thought that we were going to open up brick and mortar. Um, it was just very serendipitous. Um, I came up to La Crosse, Wisconsin for a visit and I had a meeting in which I was asked to meet in um, this cafe and at 7 a.m. And I went to this, to this cafe and it was closed just for this meeting. I thought um, within an hour, I found out that this restaurant and, uh, uh, this restaurant slash cafe had been permanently closed for two years and um, putting two, two together and the owner of the building being there, the conversation started leading to um, if you're interested in to moving, why won't you move here? And if you move here, here's an opportunity to take over this restaurant that was fully equipped um, so it was literally like someone just turned off the lights the day before and went home, like it was open and it now, you know, it was closed. Um, but at that meeting, the meeting wasn't about that building. The meeting was about the community and talking about revitalization. So I was brought in to talk about how could we bring revitalization back to the 1200 block of Caledonia street on the North side of La Crosse. And, with this idea, it started spearing into, oh my gosh, this could be a community impact space. How can this space alone help create an impact on this community, help the community um, make their own identity and voice to speak up to the city to help with its needs? Um you know, it was never necessarily about the food <laughs> and the food came later. Um, And what, you know, like, what were we going to do for the community? You know, um, I knew Southern food. Um, there wasn't another Southern food restaurant in La Crosse, Wisconsin. So it was, you know, it was going to be something new. It was filling a gap that wasn't here. Um, I'm also, uh, at that time, I was the only Black female um, restaurant owner um, and Black restaurant owner, period, um, that would be opening a restaurant there. So, you know, I had a lot of things or a lot of hurdles that um, that were going to come up uh, with being the only one at the time. So, you know, it created an opportunity beyond just a community impact, but it created, helped create a model for other people or other Black women or other um, African-Americans that were interested in starting their own business. So now we're going to get into talking about your uh, really interesting project, 40 Acres and a Mule Project. So I'm going to let Anne ask these questions. I mean, there's so much I'd love to ask you, Adrian. Um, and the story that, that HuffPost did, you know, obviously, um, you know, talks about um, 40 Acres and a Mule. But, you know, there's a quote in here where you, where you talk about... Um, you know, uh, you know. Obviously, this this came about as as a result of uh, the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests. And then you were getting, um, you wanted to do something, right? And and you started getting. How did how did the you started get started getting some anonymous donations? Um, explain that a little bit, I guess. Yeah, it was kind of interesting because. Um, I would say probably two or three days before um, this project 
came to fruition, I had had a conversation with another fellow chef who received a message on her Venmo of someone trying to send her money. Um, and in fact, it was, it was a, a white lady who was a stranger, wanted to send her money because she wanted her support to support her because I guess she saw her IG. And um, she didn't know necessarily what to do um, about accepting money from a stranger she didn't know. Um, I kind of just laughed about it and um, didn't think about it anymore. Um, the next day when I went to work, um, I had an envelope in my mailbox and it was a check and there was really no message to it. It was just a card and it just said, keep dancing. And I, for the moment, was trying to figure out where this came from. Did I have a catering gig that I missed um, that I didn't know about? Um, did someone owe me money or were they trying to order something? And I just kind of put it to the side. Um, the next day I received a, a message asking me for my Venmo from a peer um, who's in the same situation as I am and during COVID at only, uh, being a restaurant owner. Um, and she wanted to send me um, some money. And I started be you know a little perplexed on why people were trying to just anonymously send me cash um you know if it was reparations or white guilt i didn't know but necessarily i'm not the type of person to accept money without a cause um and so i went to sleep on it and when i woke up it was just clear as day that um the thing that i really saw that was a need was to support black agriculture and uh, black farmers and trying to figure out a way how we can send support but also necessarily um preserve their legacy yeah and you're in a part of the state where i mean agriculture is big um lacrosse area um did you have an idea of, of, or and do you have an idea of where um, you'd like to purchase this land? I mean, uh, and where this sanctuary would take place? Yeah. So, you know, thank you for calling it a sanctuary. <laughs> but, um, you you know, being in La Crosse, Wisconsin, like you said, we're surrounded by farms and especially organic farms um, being in the Cooley Regional Valley because of the terrain. The terrain is very difficult to do any type of commercial agriculture. Um, in owning a restaurant and working with farmers, you start noticing that it's very homogeneous and there's not a huge diversity of types of of farmers that are available. Um, when we started uh, talking about this project or bringing this project to fruition, um, the land came up and it ended up being a very serious conversation over where does this property go? Because a lot of Black farmers or a majority of the Black farmers are in the South. Um, so, you know, was that going to be a play of doing this property in the Southern states? Um as we continue on, we started seeing the support and need of it being in the Midwest, but necessarily we're not discounting the South, that this may end up being more than one property. Um, does the property need to be exactly 40 acres or does the property could we do more than one property that add up to 40 acres? We're starting to see the need and um, the request to look beyond just the Midwest. Okay. And um this the idea of um, uh, of looking at and finding and recreating the traditional ways of planting 
Um, talk a little bit about that, because that is so uh, key to this. Yeah, I mean, what's so uh, particular that I, I guess I find um, the most enjoyable is looking at the history of Black agriculture and really discovering how the majority of the current agricultural um, techniques and traditions and things that we do today really have spearhead off of Black agriculture or Black study of agriculture and invention of in Black agriculture. So um, those stories have been lost over time. And, you know, if you follow us on IG, you'll, you'll see those stories. We'll, we'll bring them up, the history of it up to, to kind of bring notice to um, the inventors of these processes. So, you know, like the CSA box was created by a black man. Um, crop rotation was um, invented and perfected by a black man. And, and you know, and, and for us, that history um, should be well known and um, and especially well known in the agricultural field. So for us, the on using the property, we're hoping to take these techniques um, current or in the past and bring them forth to to learn how to do a different way of agriculture. We're also talking about historically, you know, uh, archiving and talking to Black farmers today and asking their traditional methods. It has also come to our attention, um, and we have been contacted from all around the world um, in, in Africa, uh, talking about their traditions and, and how does that affect how Black agriculture plays today? So going back to early June, or I guess it was around June 7th, um, there was a GoFundMe campaign online. I don't know. Is it still online? It is still online and it's still going. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So the, uh, <laughs> The day that I said that we're going to do the 40 acres in a mule project um, is the same day we launched the GoFundMe. I had such determination that, you know, I woke up that morning, literally 6.53, and by 5 p.m. we had put up the GoFundMe. And it was with a lot of mentorship and speaking to a lot of different people in the hospitality field and partly in the agricultural field about this need. And there's this gap. And I knew there was this gap because just the live experience that I have trying to work with different farmers. Um, when we established the GoFundMe, you play devil's advocate with yourself. You're like, is it going to be the $10 you donated and that's all you're going to get? Because there's so many different um, needs out there in the world. Or will you make your goal? And so um, even setting the goal is, is is a modest, like how much does it really take to run a farm? Or how much does it take to buy land and till the land equipment? It's more than $100,000. That was our first our first ask. And we thought that we would just ask for, you know, a nominal number that would make a stand, but it, we knew it was never going to be enough. $100,000 is not going to be enough to establish a 40 acre farm and especially in the Midwest. Um, but it was a start to see if there was an interest or if the community, um, really supported this. Um, and then by, you know, a month and two days, we made our goal of a hundred thousand. Yeah. Uh, tell us about the inspiration and the importance of, of the phrase 40 acres and a mule. Yeah, sure. Um, so after we were emancipated um, in 18, 1865 uh, with President Lincoln, um, you 
you uh, had slaves, you know, emancipated. So black slaves were emancipated and you had slaves that were free. They were literally given nothing. So you were just kind of released, right? <laughs> you know, and they had no identity. Um, during this time or during the fight or during the war, um, when the North would take over certain areas in the South and they would free slaves, the slaves were following the army where they were going by the thousands, by the drones. And because they had nowhere to go, they were just following the path for freedom. Um, when um, General Sherman um, met with about 20 men, he had 12 questions. And the third question that he asked was, what do you want? And the men that he met with were leaders and reverends, Black leaders and reverends. And he asked them, what do you want? And one of the men stood up and said, we want land. And that was so such a strong statement because land helped I help create identity, it creates economy, it creates community. And with this idea, he said, Okay, we have about forty, you know, like four hundred thousand acres. And they had meals. So the meals really did exist. They were meals they used during the war. They were like, What if we give everybody forty acres and a meal? And so they divvied up the land and gave um, gave gave former slaves forty acres in a meal. So that was the beginning of it, and that was under Special Field Order Number Fifteen. Um, and within a couple months, there was the assassination of Lincoln. And after the assassination of Lincoln, the vice president took over, who happened to be a Southerner, but also a sympathetic towards the old landowners. He reversed the field order and gave the land back to the original owners before the war. So you had a lot of people or you had a lot of uh, former slaves that were now being told they they could not till the land and it, it was no longer their land. So you had a lot of issues happening. You had people that got up and left, but you had people that wanted to fight for their property because they said, no, this is ours. Um, you had people who got arrested. You you had a lot of issues that were happening um, with these with these properties. Um, so some things that came out of it, um, sharecropping came out of it. Um, some people were willing to allow the former slaves to stay on the land, but the ownership went back to the whites and they could stay on the land if they could till the land, make a profit from the land and pay the landowner or pay the landowner in crops. But also they had to pay, they had to pay the shops in which they, they got tools and seeds from plus interest. So you start having that word sharecropper come that plays an effect into what some black farmers still are today. They may be farmers, but they don't own the land that they are uh, farming on. Um, and that's where you start seeing the, the less than 2% of black farmers across the nation today. Talk about education. Um, and the importance of, of, of documenting history here. Yeah, I mean, this history is, is you know, if you dive deep and you start doing research, it just unravels and you just start going down a rabbit hole sometimes uh, and discovering and connecting the dots of how we got to where we are today. Education and, and plays a serious role on understanding where we came from, but where and how we have developed our food today, um, be it for if we're teaching the youth.
youth or if we're teaching um, our older or even if we're talking and working with the farmers is that they have a clearer understanding of where this process came from and how we got to where we are. But this goes beyond this because when we can start talking politically, um, when you start talking about reparations and what has happened when the 40 acres and the mule um, took on the identity of reparations and how does that take effect today? Um, and, you know, and for me, that reparation looks more like affordable housing. So, you know, I'm putting my planner hat on right now. So that looks like more like affordable housing. But when you start looking at the way Black people were treated and the way we have made it today, we have, you know, we're still fighting for our rights and we're still fighting for that capability to have land ownership. So there's a lot of systemic racism that is running through our history that has um, created barriers for us to be where we are today. You know, when you started this project, which, which again, we're, we're, you know, this, this has been just over a month, right? I mean, six weeks, if that, um, how, uh, I mean, this is going to take, you know, uh, a, a village in a way. Tell Talk about some of the people that are helping you. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I call it the community because it is the community. Uh, if you yeah. saw, you know, our our GoFundMe, we had over 1.5 thousand people donate towards us. And I answer messages on a daily basis. So I'm really answering the messages, you know. Um, you know, I have um, people in New York and New Jersey who are, help, who are helping me on the back end to put, to bring this together. I mean, I know I necessarily could never do this alone. And I have the community here in La Crosse that supports me heavily. Um, we've had um, corporations and companies step up and want to help beyond just donating money. They're looking at the future of sustainability. Like they see this idea of really working. We have the the Wisconsin Economic Development Coalition. They're helping us uh, look more into the sustainability factor. Like, can this be replicable? Can we keep going with this? Can these ideas of education and learning help other farmers open their own. So, you know, we're looking at business plans. We're looking at the economics of agriculture, which has issues of its own. And how can we be make it better for people and minorities that want to go into the agricultural world? And brought up the fact about you had support from companies and, and communities and people from around the country. But one company that stepped up, Wisconsin company, Organic Valley, tell me how that came to be. Did they just see the GoFundMe page? Did they reach out to you? How did that connection happen? I believe it it probably came through social media um because they made the donation before reaching out. Okay. Um and that was, you know, surprising. So what one of the funny things is is that I really never look at the GoFundMe page. I feel like I might jinx it. Um <laughs> so through this process, I would never look at it. So, you know, or my husband would like text me a number or my best friend would say you need to go look at the the GoFundMe page um, because I was very much tunnel vision of doing the work. Um, and I kept saying the money will get there one day, but the work needs to start now. And so I was in this tunnel vision and when organic Valley donated, um, you know, it was 
it was very humbling, but also like solidified, like they saw the importance of this, like companies are starting to see the importance of diversity within their field and the need of diversity within their field. And then they reached out and they wanted to have a conversation uh, to talk about the the need of this pro- of this project and how could they support beyond monetary and you know in in that conversation you started talking about sustainability like it, this is not supposed to be just a fad or you know a one time thing this is something that's going to help change the diversity within the agricultural field so i know you talk about supporting black farmers but also part of this campaign is preserving black foodways First, explain for our listeners, what do you mean by Black Foodways and how is 40 Acres and Mule are going to do that beyond, do you have plans beyond just the farm, the land to preserve the foodways? Can you talk more about that? Foodways talks more than about the food that's grown from the ground. It talks about the culture and the way that the food in the history of how it was developed. And uh, when you talk about Black foodways, you know, a lot of people relate it to just Southern food. But in reality, uh, Black foodways is very diverse. So, you you know, you have cross-pollination within Asian, Hispanic, um, you have South America, African. There's just... Uh, Foodways is developed and diverse across the board. Um, so within 40 acres, we are really looking at the preservation of the legacy of Black Foodways. So, you know, when you see or hear about the history of Black Foodways, it's usually like one month out of the year. It's usually Black History Month, February. And then it kind of just dies down. Um, here, we want to really celebrate it you know, every day, 365 days of the year and be able to collect that information. And especially right now during COVID, um, this is a very serious act. We have a lot of Black, um, you have a lot of Black restaurants and a lot of uh, Black caterers in food that are suffering right now through COVID and to the point that they may not open again. We don't necessarily have a number of how many Black restaurants exist in the United States. Yeah, I wondered about that. And that's a large question. Like, how many Black restaurants exist in the United States? We don't know. But you also don't under, we don't know the diversity of types of food and types of cultural food that exists in the United States. So this is an opportunity for us to really kind of dive in deep and figure that out. Um, I was used to be looking at the history and this is just, you know, I did this in Austin, the history of restaurants and black restaurants within Austin, you know, going through the history books and looking at kind of what you would say, call what are their white pages and to see what was there. And I, you know, I would discover like in, in the early 1900s that there were more black restaurants existing at that time than they were at the current time when I was started looking in 2016, Mm. 2017. So, you know, I'm really trying to understand the diversity of our food, but how many are, how many are existing? And then how can we support them? So, you know, you know, we're looking to do surveys to kind of understand who's going to open back up and who's not, who stayed open through COVID, who didn't open, you know, who's not open during COVID to have a real understanding of, of the field and to see where do they need support? Is it, you know, is it that, 
they did get PPP money or did they not get PPP money? Mm-hmm. You know, were they denied? Did they get it? What did they do with that? You know, this whole aspect, but it also breaks down the economy too for the restaurant of how, you know, how many employees were they able to keep employed versus how many were not. So, and that's more, you know, um, you know, to, to get out of the homogeneous of restaurants across the board, but really start trying to dive deep into understanding um, the lack of diversity in the restaurant, but also the lack of voices being heard in the hospitality sector. So part of this project, if I'm not mistaken, it's also documenting and maybe even collecting data too. Am I correct? That's correct. So yeah, I mean, I'm coming from the planning world, so it's all about data. So, you know, and making sure that we have those numbers, but also be able to take these numbers and go, you know, go to our congressmen or go to our, the different hospitality organizations to say, here, this is where you really should be looking at. And, and, to, and understanding that we don't have a solid voice uh, within the hospitality world, but we, but we should, and we, and we need help. Speaking about Wisconsin, since this is kind of starting in Wisconsin, um, I think I asked this to be before on Facebook, uh, but how many black farmers are in Wisconsin or just the Midwest? You know, you brought up the fact that most of the black farmers are in the South, which probably makes sense. But also I was always, always curious about that because also there was this, you know, great migration that brought a lot of people up. So I was kind of where where are the black farmers in Midwest? Are there any in Wisconsin? There are black farmers in Wisconsin. Um, and you know, that big migration where a lot, there were a lot of black farms and farmers in Wisconsin at some time. Um, there had a, there was a lot to play in that. There was a lot of history. There was a lot of violence. Um, there was a lot of discrimination that um, ended up the, the lack of black farmers existing today um, in Wisconsin. You know, our, our numbers are very small. And what I mean by small, I mean by, by the handful. Um, and it's also on how you decide to define a farmer. If you're talking urban farmers or rural farmers, um, and if they own their land and if they don't own their land. So that's, you know, that's our, uh, a really big play. I'm looking a majority at like rural farming or people that have larger acres, um, and, in in mm-hmm. doing farming, but the number is very small and i literally can tell you on the by the handful um i you know during covid it's very difficult to you know go and visit um i was able to visit two different black farmers um in wisconsin but like i said there's not a lot and your focus right now is going to be on the the rural side of the the farm equation is that correct Correct. Yes. But we will still be in contact with urban farms and, and, and hopefully working with the urban farms. So this project's going and getting funded besides, you know, of course, financial funds. Um, what other things that like, this is your chance to say, what other, what other things are you looking for to help you with this project beyond funding? Yeah, you know, so one one has been the land. Um, you know, we're looking at different properties, but also uh, if there's opportunity for people that are interested in donating um, acres, you know, necessarily it doesn't have to be the 40 acres. It can be part of our 40 acres, Um, you know, tools 
education. We connect with farmers that are willing to help us out when we get up to production. You know, we're not going to be producing anything this year. You know, we're about to move into the fall and then into snow. So we have time to really talk about what that looks like. Um, you know, collaborations and, and working um, with farmers and teaching uh, opportunities. We're interested in beekeeping is a, um, and apiaries are, are a, a big subject that I've been asked about. Um, we're definitely interested in doing aquaponics and greenhousing. So, so having a greenhouse is another thing that we're, um, we really do want on the property and to have that education and understanding of what's, what's happening. I can only go so far. So we, you know, we have, um, you know, and I've had an aquaponic system, so we have some of this education there, but the standpoint of having mentors, you know, this is, uh, this is about community. So working with the community to find out where we can fit in and then also working with organizations that help, farmers out. Um, we do have Black farmers that are reaching out to us that we would love to connect to if they need help trying to keep or secure land. So uh, we rather be the conduit in this. So, you know, we are, we've been saying we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We just want the wheel to go. We want to help the wheel go faster. So, you know, we know we can't do everything on our property or, you know, we can't do everything as this organization, but we want to also assist in, like I said, be that conduit between organizations that will help with farmers. If people hear this and they want to learn more and uh, contact you, how would they do that? You can go on I, on IG or Instagram and you can look up uh, the 40 Acres Project. It's 40 Acres Project. Um, you feel free to email us. Uh, you can email me at adrian at 40acreproject.com. Um, you know, I've had people <laughs> do all sorts of things to get my contact information to meet me. So, you know, um, you know, but mainly the majority of our information has been coming through either IG, Instagram, or through email. Okay. Well, thank you for letting us know about this amazing project, 40 Acre and a Mule Project. 